Uh, Dallas, I, I've been listening to uh, these sermons on Ephesians over the last several months, and it's been a real joy to, to be able to see those. I was talking to Darren earlier, and we were talking about what a, what a privilege it is today to be able to go online and, and listen we used to have to get cassette tapes. You remember what those were? Okay, well, anyway. Dallas did a great job last week describing the reconciliation that God orchestrated between Jew and Gentile. And as we briefly review this great mystery, we need to fully understand the enmity that existed uh, between these two groups. If you think there's enmity today between political parties, uh, that would not even register on the enmity dial compared to the enmity that existed between these two groups. To the Jew, the idea of including Gentiles in one body was the spiritual equivalent of saying that lepers were no longer uh, they no longer needed to be isolated, that they were now perfectly free to intervene, to be a part of general society, uh, and to associate with everyone uh, without any restrictions. In the mind of most Jews, uh, their spiritual separation from Gentiles was so absolute and so right that, they, that the very thought of total equality between those two groups was just barely short of utter blasphemy. It would be like denying the virgin birth, the deity of Christ, the inerrancy of Scripture, salvation by grace, and whatever other essential you might want to add into that. Uh, <clears throat> Paul said to his, general, his readers back in chapter 2, and I think they were probably well aware of this, don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders. You were called uncircumcised heathen. We would call them today pond scum or, uh, you know, snail bait or something equally disgusting. They were called dogs. A Jewish man would get up in the morning and he would thank God that he was not born a slave or a woman or a Gentile. So ladies, at least you weren't called dogs. You had no part in our covenant relationship with God. You were completely excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. You had no hope. And you were completely separated from God. If you wanted a relationship with God, you had to become a Jew. Go back to chapter 2, verse 13, the second half of that verse. And he starts that out by saying, but now, what a sweet, sweet phrase that is. But now, now things are different. But now you have been united with Christ Jesus. And so, if you'll allow me, I'd like to read a portion of that section. And I want you to kind of begin to think of yourself as either a Jew um, or just a garden variety Gentile, whatever that might be. And kind of let the words sink in slowly. Once you were far away from God, hopelessly lost, but now you have been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. For Christ himself has brought grace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when in his own body on the cross. He broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. 
He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from the two groups. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross, and our hostility toward each other was put to death. That word peace that he uses there uh, is, is the idea of well-being, uh, the idea of absence of conflict, prosperity, and security. Uh, the Old Testament equivalent uh, was the word shalom, uh, which carries even a broader uh, uh, and more inclusive definition. Shalom conveys the idea of complete harmony between God and man in all areas of life. It was the idea of complete harmony between man and man in all of society's different functions. It was the idea of nation and nation being in peace and in harmony with one another. It was the idea that all was as it should be. He brought the good news as we continue of peace to you Gentiles who were far away from him and peace to the Jews who were near. Now all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done. So now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with all of God's family. Together we are his house built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets and the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. We are carefully joined together in becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Through him, you Gentiles are also being made part of this dwelling where Christ lives by his spirit. And everybody lived happily ever after. Hmm. Well, not exactly. Can you imagine how this might have been received by these two groups of people. Here are two groups of people that for centuries, for centuries, felt this way about each other. A Jewish couple might respond and say, hey, there is no way I am going to sit in the same room and worship our God with those dog Gentiles. The Gentile couple says, there's no way I'm going to sit in the room with all those legalistic, killjoy, religious zealots who think that somehow they have a corner on piety. Not going to happen. Not doing that. Um, <laughs> Dallas pointed out last week that you know, there were several instances, particularly in the book of Acts, where uh, even some of the apostles were challenged in their thinking it would be something like the Supreme Court of the United States uh, issuing an edict that the Republican Party and the Democratic Party were now going to become just one group. And then let's just all get along. Yeah, that wasn't going to happen. I, I thought about that and I thought, nah, I don't know. I'm not sure that would be possible. Uh, well, with that, let's pick up our text for today. In verse 1, as we look at the revelation of this mystery, Paul says, When I think of all this, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for the benefit of you Gentiles, assuming, by the way, that you know God gave me the special responsibility of extending his grace to you Gentiles, as I briefly wrote earlier, God himself revealed this mystery uh, to me. 
And so after revealing this very weighty uh, mystery in verses 11 through 22 of that chapter, Paul then is actually ready to launch into a prayer, a prayer for spiritual growth. Simultaneously, and I, ne I never understand people that can do this, but he apparently is now, his, his mind goes from prayer to thinking, oh, wait a minute, there's a couple of things I want to say about this mystery before we move on to prayer. Uh, <clears throat> people that can track down two courses at the same time mystify me. I'm too much of a linear thinker, I suppose. So uh, he goes on then, uh, because what you have now is kind of this parenthetical thought in this text for the day. Uh, because there's something more he wants to say here in, in, this, in what, what he said last week. So he goes on in verse 1 to describe himself as a prisoner of Christ Jesus. He had been arrested on Jewish charges, but Paul did not consider himself to be a prisoner of the Jews. He was imprisoned by Roman authorities, but he did not consider himself a prisoner of Rome. He saw himself only as a prisoner of Christ Jesus. He didn't see himself as a prisoner of anyone except the Lord, with the responsibility to reach out to the Gentiles with the gospel. You know, how we view our circumstances is often a matter of perspective, isn't it? Much of the discourse today, I think, unfortunately, revolves around the state of the world and its imminent demise. I call it the Eeyore discourse. Oh, the world is going to the dogs. Oh, the political issue or that political issue. Oh, the kids today are just awful. You know, when I was a kid, we had to walk five miles to school in the rain, uphill both ways. I can't remember a time when we were so divided. We have divisions within divisions today. And there's a, a day coming, though, when all that will change because Jesus is coming. And when he comes, he is going to make the world right. He's going to bring judgment. And so I, I choose to uh, see the state of the world today as a, a place of opportunity. It's an opportunity to share with people who have no hope. Most people, I find, can't tell you why they believe what they believe. It's a hunch or it's something they got on TV or the Internet. Um, <clears throat> and so it's a matter of perspective. Looking at the world today, we can either see it through the eyes of gloom and doom or we can see it as a potential opportunity to work in the kingdom uh, garden. Paul was a minister of Jesus Christ, bought with a price, and given the special mission of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. He was therefore the prisoner of Christ. In his letter to the Philippians, we find Paul writing again in chains from a prison. It seems like he was there a lot. Uh, to the church in Philippi, he says, And I want you to know, 
my dear brothers and sisters, that everything that has happened to me here has helped to spread the good news. For everyone here, including the whole palace guard, knows that I'm in chains because of Christ. Knowing a little bit of Paul's personality, how would you like to have been a guard? This guy just keeps on with this and on with this. And all day I have to sit here and listen to this. Um, he goes on to say that there are some who are preaching with wrong motives uh, and out of jealousy and spite, but it doesn't matter to him. He says, whether their motives are false or genuine, the message about Christ is being preached either way. And so I rejoice. Paul had a choice to see his circumstances as either positive or negative, and he chooses to see them as a positive. In this instance, as we see our text, Paul again did not see himself as a prisoner uh, of Jew or Rome. He saw himself as a prisoner of Jesus Christ. God had extended his grace to Paul, and then he in turn gave Paul the stewardship uh, or the responsibility of that grace to be used supremely for the benefit of the Gentiles. Uh, instead of seeing himself in chains in a Roman prison, he says, God gave me this special response. It's almost, you can almost hear him, <laughs> God gave me this really special uh, opportunity of extending his grace uh, to the Gentiles. He considered it a privilege to serve the Lord, even in chains, because he looked at his circumstances in light of a much higher calling, a much higher purpose. As a slave to Christ, it was nothing but an honor <clears throat> and a joy for him. As a slave to Christ, it was nothing but utter joy. He was the one that got to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Well, moving along, as we look at the next section here in verses 4 to 6, we see kind of the explanation of this great mystery. Now we're going to get into some details about this that Paul had thought about in chapter 2, or hadn't thought about in chapter 2, and now is talking about. So he says, as you read what I've written, you will understand my insight into this plan regarding Christ. God did not reveal it to previous generations, but now by his Spirit, he has revealed it to his holy apostles and prophets. And now we see the mystery clearly revealed. Paul says, and this is God's plan. Both Gentiles and Jews who believe the good news share equally in the riches inherited by God's children. Both are a part of the same body, and both enjoy the promises of blessings because they belong to Christ. The New American Standard, I think, says that a little better. It says, to be specific, that the Gentiles are going to be fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So not only was he given the privilege to share the gospel with, with the Gentiles, God had also given him insight into this mystery, something Paul refers to as the mystery, mysterious plan uh, of God. <clears throat> I don't know what you watch. <clears throat> I don't know what you read. Um, I like mysteries. I love mysteries. And so when Alberta's awake, uh, my dear wife, we watch the Hallmark Channel. And there's no mystery at all. 
I can tell you within five minutes, the boy is going to fall in love with the girl, the girl is going to fall in love with the boy, and then there's going to be some sort of crisis that develops that puts the entire relationship in utter jeopardy. And then someone or something intervenes on their behalf and the crisis is averted and they live happily ever after. End of story. <clears throat> That's pretty much how all of them are. And I'm not making fun of them. They're, they're fine. <laughs> um, as soon as Alberta goes to bed, if I'm still not sleepy, I, I usually turn on some kind of mystery and I'm happy camper. Now, one of the great mysteries of life, however, uh, is one that uh, happens in most every home in America. Uh, and I have never been able to solve this at all. You can put six pairs of socks in the washing machine, and wash them, and get them out, and put six pairs of socks in the dryer. And then when they're finished drying, you open up the lid, and now there's five and one-half pairs of socks. I have actually counted them twice before, and I don't know where that other sock goes, but it happens on a regular basis. That's a great mystery, but it's not the kind of mystery that Paul is talking about here. This mystery is only known to those to whom it has been revealed. As a matter of fact, this mystery has been hidden and unknown uh, to anyone for centuries, as great as he was, Abraham never conceived of it. Elijah couldn't figure it out. Uh, Jeremiah couldn't figure it out. Isaiah wasn't able to figure it out. In verse 5, he says, this is a mystery that God did not reveal to previous generations. But now, there's that phrase again, by the Holy Spirit, he had revealed it to Paul and the other apostles. No one really knew the full meaning or the magnitude of God's promise to Abraham. God had said to Abraham, in, all, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And Abraham never completely figured that out. The inclusion of the Gentiles was actually envisioned on a pretty broad scale in the Old Testament. It wasn't like the Gentiles were not around or not blessed in a lot of ways, <clears throat> but nothing quite like this. It's very difficult for us to com comprehend how incredibly uh, revolutionary the, the truth was that uh, uh, to the Jews of Paul's day, uh, in spite of the fact that the Old Testament teaches that Gentiles will be blessed by God, that um, God would be blessed by Gentiles, uh, <clears throat> Uh, Gentiles, uh, that the Messiah rather will come to the Gentiles and that they will be saved by the Messiah and that they will receive the Holy Spirit. That was all in Old Testament thinking, but the idea of including Gentiles and Jew in one body with the Jews was unthinkable. Didn't happen. Wasn't going to happen. Old Testament saints had no vision for uh, the church at all. The assembling together of the saved into one body in which they were absolutely no racial or ethnic distinctions. Uh, this mystery went far beyond what was envisioned in the promise to Abraham at all. And yet, Paul declares that first of all, the Gentiles are fellow heirs. Those who were once excluded 
and strangers to the covenants of the promise now have exactly the same entitlement. They are uh, entitled with every spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. You read about that in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Paul told the Galatians, regardless of your racial or other heritage, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offering. Heirs according to the promise. If you're here this morning and you're a saved man or woman, you are Abraham's offspring. It's a great thought, isn't it? Secondly, Gentiles are also now fellow members of the body. They are not just many members, uh, not sort of members. They are now equally blessed as outsiders, as joint heirs who have all of the same benefit as Jews. They are full members of the body, linked together, doing life with every other person in God's family. Fellow members, indistinguishable in God's eyes, from the other, from any other member. Every child of God is only God's child. They are God's kids. You are God's boys and girls. Spiritually, the believer today has no other genes but divine genes. First Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12 and 13 says, For even as the body is one, yet has many members, <clears throat> and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. Number three, in addition to having the same legal and family status, Gentiles also are now fellow partakers of the promise of Christ through the gospel. All Christians, regardless uh, of <coughs> all Christians, regardless of their status or position, are now far fellow partakers in everything. That's a thought I find hard to understand sometimes, but it's a magnificent thought. Believers are made everything he is and is given everything he has. The mystery is Christ himself in whom believers have everything. God predestines every believer to become conformed to the image of his son. This is an answer to the high priestly prayer of our Lord recorded in John 17. He says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that thou didst send me and the glory which thou hast given me, I have given to them that they may be one, just as we are one, I in them and thou in me, that they may be perfected in unity, that the world may know that thou didst send me and didst love them even as thou didst love me. I was thinking this morning as we were praying, um, all throughout this entire world, there are people praying to God in various languages, and he understands it all. My wife and I have met a Chinese couple in our neighborhood. We've known them for probably three years or so. We've gotten to be friends with them. And um, they have been, their church had been meeting in, a, in another church downtown, First Baptist or 
I, that shows you how old I am. Um, what is it now? Cross point? Yeah, or cross road, something. Um, and they'd been there for about the last eight or ten years, I guess, uh, renting a little space from them. Um, happy, but they were finally able to put together enough money to buy their own church. So they bought a little church down on Prescott, and uh, they were going to occupy it on a particular Sunday. And they said, why don't you come join us? I said, oh, we'd, we'd love to. And uh, we're just celebrating the fact that we have this new church that we're going to be a part of uh, and just want you to come as our guest. So we, we went, and it was marvelous. I mean, we had such a good time, and they, we enjoyed a meal together. Um, but when the service was over, when, when the pastor had finished his, his sermon, uh, we, we then sang How Great Thou Art, or I, I don't remember the exact hymn, but a hymn. And the words were up on the, on the screen in English and then in Chinese. And it still brings tears to my eyes when I think about that because here we were singing in English and I wasn't speaking in Chinese, but I bet everybody else was speaking in Chinese. And I thought, Lord, that must, that must just bless your heart. And I thought, what a, what a kind of a foretaste of heaven when there will be every tribe and tongue there praising God. That's the church. That's the church, isn't it? One fellow said, uh, I was talking, he said, my English isn't very good. And I said, well, my Chinese is even worse, so don't worry about it. <laughs> the gospel saves lives. But it also incorporates those very same individuals into the worldwide, multiracial, multi-ethnic, eternal people of God. I don't care whether you live in Africa. I don't care whether you live in Central Asia. I don't care. We are all going to be in this very same thing. We are all part of this one huge body. This is a local expression of that, and it's wonderful. It's a great church, a great fellowship here. But we're a part of something even larger, aren't we? It's a great thing. Being in Christ through the acceptance of the gospel is what creates among believers their perfect and absolutely new entity. And there can never be true oneness apart from that reality uh, and there can never be practical unity in the church until Christians understand and live by the positional unity that they already have in Christ. They're one Lord and Savior. Positionally, we're perfect. And unfortunately, experientially, we're not. And so one of these days, though, we will. Um, all believers who are united with Christ are also united with each other. We are fellow heirs, fellow members of the same body, fellow partakers of the promise in Christ. He has made us one. He has reconciled. He has restored our relationship with God in one body. This is not just simply tolerance. This is not just coexistence. This is not just putting up with each other. <laughs> it's a little more than that. In the 15th chapter of Romans, one of my favorite passages... Paul is speaking to a rather diverse church. And it's, he's talking about the differences of opinion that this church has among their members. 
The issue here was specifically in regards to Christian liberty. Um, I won't go into a lot of detail about that, but uh, the principles that Paul lays out here are very similar in terms of matters that are not necessarily essential. Listen to that carefully. They're not essential, but they are matters of unity, aren't they? He says, therefore, because of all of this, accept one another just as Christ also accept, accepted us to the glory of God. The word I'd like to camp on here a little bit is the word accept. Doesn't, the English word accept doesn't really get, cut it. Uh, uh, the, it does not mean just to tolerate. It's a word that literally means to take to oneself or receive to oneself with special emphasis on the receiver. That's a mouthful. Uh, it portrays the idea of welcoming someone with open arms, wholeheartedly and without reservation. Let that sink in. Irrespective of my brother's ethnicity, his or her financial or social status, or his political views, or how he combs his hair or doesn't comb his hair, or whether he wears shoes or he doesn't wear shoes, um, that's my brother. And I am to accept him or her with open arms, wholeheartedly, and without reservation. Again, we're talking about matters of unity, not, we're not talking about essentials here. The virgin birth, the deity of Christ. We're talking about, do you baptize people forward or backward? I don't know how you do it here. Do you dunk them three times or just one? Is that enough? I don't know. Believe it or not, those are things that divide churches. And it shouldn't be. Uh, don't hang me in effigy here. I... I uh, I do want to say one word of clarification here. Don't confuse unity with uniformity. Those are two different things entirely. Uh, unity in the church refers to the harmony between groups. Unity happens when people from different ethnic backgrounds, different denominational distinctions, different political philosophies are able to coexist peacefully and respectfully in spite of their differences. I have a number of friends with whom I disagree on some areas. I know that's hard to understand. Um, but we have talked about those issues we both have a particular view. We don't agree, and, but we say, you know what, brother, I love you, and someday you'll be proven wrong, but you, you know, you. <laughs> We're not talking about essentials. The virgin birth, the trinity, the deity of Christ, the inerrance of scripture, or salvation by grace. Uh, <laughs> again, you might be, maybe you're an immersion guy, or maybe you're a sprinkler guy. I don't care. It doesn't matter. Uh, <laughs> I actually knew of one congregation where if you hadn't been baptized three times forward, they didn't count, uh, so you had to be rebaptized. So, whatever. Some of you may come from that. That's fine. I still love you. 
Those distinctions, however, should not separate us. That should not cause disunity in the body. We can disagree and still be respectful and still be in unity. The opposite, of course, is uniformity. Uniformity, where there is an expect expectation that everyone looks the same, smells the same, believes and behaves exactly alike. There are no allowances for differences. And it may look impressive. All these little guys all look the same and, you know, act the same. Uh, and it's easier to manage if you're, if you're in charge of a group of people that are all the same. It's, it's kind of easy to manage because people can be difficult to manage. <laughs> so it may look great, at least for a while, but it doesn't create real unity. It creates stifling. It's a sad thing to see. Well, before I completely destroy myself, let's move to verses 7 to 9, where Paul talks about the, the declaration or the proclamation of this mystery. In verse 7, Paul says, By God's grace and mighty power, I have been given the privilege of serving him by spreading this good news. The New American Standard says he was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. And that word minister uh, there means a servant who acts on the commands of others, who recognizes and submits to a higher power. His primary responsibility is to do what he is told to do. He was to be a faithful servant. Uh, wow. Time's getting away here. This was not something that Paul lobbied for. Paul considered it a privilege and an honor to serve the Lord. Uh, in various places in the New Testament, Paul gives his credentials. He was the Hebrew of Hebrews, the Pharisee of Pharisees. He was educated under Gamaliel. He was a big deal. He was a big deal. But he counted it all as loss. It was nothing more than rubbish for the sake of serving Christ. In fact, he declares himself to be the least deserving of all of God's people. He was made an apostle and a preacher and a servant by the will and power of God. He, in fact, felt unworthy of any of this. Education, experience, a pleasing personality, or the gift of gab has little or nothing to do with becoming an elder, an overseer, a pastor. If you feel like you are being called to that office, it's a good thing. Paul says it's a worthy thing. But make sure you look at the elders' qualifications. Timothy, 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 7. Um, he goes on in verse 8. Though I am the least deserving of all of God's people, he graciously gave me the privilege of telling the Gentiles about the endless treasures available to them in Christ. I was chosen to explain to everyone this mysterious plan that God, the creator of all things, had spent, had kept secret from the, from the beginning. He's talking here about the endless treasures available to them in Christ. It includes his truth, his blessings, all that he is and all that he has. His kindness, his patience, his wisdom, his knowledge, his mercy, his love, his glory, his supplication, his assurances, and his word, just to mention a few. There was a woman, a black woman, by the name of Ethel Waters, 
And this really does date me. And I'm not that old, but I'm old enough to remember who Ethel Waters was. And Ethel Waters was a, a singer, vocalist, and an actress. And uh, she said one time, probably one of her most famous quote, she says, I'm somebody because God don't make no junk. God don't make no junk. Paul reveals the purpose of this mystery in verses 10 to 11. God's purpose in all this was to use the church to display his wisdom in its rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was his eternal plan. God has brought the church into being, at least in part, for the purpose of demonstrating his great wisdom. Um, Pastor John MacArthur writes this. He says, The church does not exist simply for the purpose of saving souls, though that is a marvelous and important work. The supreme purpose of the church, as Paul makes clear here, is to glorify God demonstrating his wisdom before the angels who can then offer greater praise to God. He goes on to say the purpose of the universe is to give glory to God. Actually, that's all of our purposes. One of my other favorite verses is Isaiah chapter 43, 7, I think it is, uh, where the prophet says, everyone, or God says, everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created for my glory. I wasn't created to be this or that or anything. I was created to give God glory. Um, the angels see him taking Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female, and making them by the cruel cross one spiritual body. And these are all people that des deserved hell but now they're a part of this wonderful body. Finally, maybe mercifully, uh, in verses 12 to 13 as we close, Paul speaks about the privilege of the ministry, or the mystery, I'm sorry. Because of Christ and our faith in him, we can now come boldly and confidently into God's presence. So please, don't lose heart because of my trials here. I'm suffering for you, so you should feel honored. When we put our faith in Christ, we can come freely 24-7 to take advantage of the uh, unfathomable riches that are in Christ. This is a privilege within the ministry of the church. So what? So what? We spent an, almost an hour. Um, <clears throat> And there's a lot of great theology in this text. But so what? What are some questions that we have to ask ourselves? And I'm not trying to pin that on anybody. This is, you may have your own list, uh, for me at least. I, there were a couple of things I thought about. One was perspective. And again, I'm not poking fun at anyone in particular, but there are brothers and sisters that are just kind of hanging around the bus station waiting for the bus to go to heaven. And um, all they see is a very chaotic, confused, and divided, sinful world. And, and yeah, there's no question but what that's true. I'm not denying that. But as believers, we still have a job. 
we're still to be salt and light in a dying world. And there are those that need to hear about the mystery of Christ. And so we have a choice about how we respond to all of this. And then lastly, I want to talk just a minute about the church. I love the church. I really do. I love this church. I love the church universal. I love it with all of its flaws. I do. All of its brokenness. I love it. Because it's still the hope of the world. Still the hope of the world. God made it. It's become fashionable over the last, I don't know, maybe decade or two, uh, to view the church in a rather negative light. Oh, it's narrow-minded, or it's too open-minded. It's full of hypocrites. Uh, They're just interested in your money. Uh, They're bigoted and self-righteous. You know what? It's true. It is true. We have have people in, in all of our churches who have flaws. In fact, it's a great place to come if you have flaws. If you're perfect, you don't need to be here. Um, So it's true on one hand. Um, We need to be reminded often that the church is flawed because it's made up of flawed people. Redeemed redeemed by a perfect Savior who by his shed blood reconciled us to himself and created shalom. You know, it's not about going to church. Sometimes we pat ourselves on the back because we went to church. And it's really not about going to church. It's more about being at church. Um, If you just come listen to some guy talk for an hour or whatever, you know, that's fine. And you go home, have dinner, whatever. Um, No, it's it's about living in a community of people who are different who are different than you and from each other. And it's about reaching out to people who are broken and in great need and need to know about the treasures available to us in Christ. It's about a whole world out there destined for eternal separation from a holy God um, who desperately need to know him and to hear about the riches of Christ. They need to be reconciled to a right relationship to a holy God. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your church. It's your idea. It's yours. You made it. You put it all into perspective, and you put it into place to put all these different people together, people with different personalities, people with different thoughts, people in all manner of brokenness, and yet you love us. And you want the best for us. So we thank you for that. Thank you for your church. Thank you for the privilege of being a part of that body. And so we ask that you bless them in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we are going to be led in communion. We get to celebrate the, 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 the death of our Savior.